0: Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is coming, and from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Your friends in Christ. Chuck was enjoying his shower. After more than a decade, probably closer to two, of working at a desk... Vegging on a couch, snacking on high carb snacks, and just generally not taking care of himself. He carried 60 or 70 more pounds on his frame than he ought to, and the only strong muscles he could claim were the ones he used to get himself out of bed each day. But this week, he had finally turned over a new leaf. Monday morning he had joined a gym and signed up with a personal trainer and now this had been his third workout this week and it had pushed him harder than he could ever remember being pushed before. So the post-workout shower felt better than any shower he could ever remember taking before. But all good things must come to an end and he turned off the water. After he'd stepped out and dried himself off and And on the way to the dresser for clean clothes, he stopped in front of the bedroom's full length mirror, something he'd always avoided before. And he couldn't help himself. He flexed. He tightened. He strutted. He was sure he saw a difference. He smiled. He posed. Then he locked eyes with his reflection and tried something he'd only seen in the movies. He smoldered. He liked what he saw. He thought to himself he'd have to try it later with Sharon, his wife. And just then, Sharon called out from downstairs. Hey, Chuck, I forgot to tell you. Remember how I told you I I signed us up for that new 24-hour reality TV show? Well, while you were working out, they installed the cameras in our bedroom. There's one behind the mirror. I, I hope you're not doing anything embarrassing because you're on TV now and I told everybody we know to watch. There's a word for what Chuck was feeling in that moment before there was time for any anger or regret exposed. The naked truth was that there was no hiding. No going back to hit undo. No way to spin things and leave his pride intact. It wasn't just his body or his actions. His most private thoughts and feelings had been exposed. and There was nothing he could do about any of it. That's just a little picture of how any of us, even the most pious or accomplished Christians, would feel... If we found ourselves suddenly brought into the throne room of heaven, as Isaiah was in our first reading today, exposed. Doesn't matter what you're wearing when you realize you're standing before the one who sees all and knows everything. Doesn't matter how faithful you are or what good works you think you have done when you are confronted with the perfect blazing glory of the Lord of armies. And every sin you've ever committed rises in your mind to remind you just how blemished your record is and how much you deserve to burn. There's no hiding. There's no excusing. There's no spin. The naked truth of who you really are and everything you have done and failed to do is exposed. But God desires destruction and damnation and burning for no one. And so that exposure is not the end of it. Not for Isaiah and not for us. What he has in mind for us is something better, something new, something with both perfection and purpose, a, a new identity. And it has everything to do with his identity and what Isaiah saw there that day in the temple. Let's read again our first lesson, Isaiah 6 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of the one who called, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, I am doomed. I am ruined, because I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies... Then one of the seraphim flew to me, carrying a glowing coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with the coal and said, Look, this has touched your lips, so your guilt is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, did Isaiah learn anything about God that day? No and yes. No, he didn't, because as a believer, and especially as the Lord's prophet, he already knew that the Lord was glorious, mighty, and holy. Yes, he did learn something, because those things that he had only known intellectually before, he now learned in a deep and vivid way. He experienced them all firsthand, and it terrified him, as it should. Isaiah surely remembered two things from the life of Moses. One was the Lord himself saying to Moses on Mount Sinai, No one may see me and live. The second was God's reminder to Moses shortly before his death as to why Moses who had faithfully led the Israelites for 40 years since before they left Egypt, why he would not be allowed to enter the promised land of Canaan with them. God told him, You will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. The Lord's holiness is not something to be treated lightly, even by the most faithful of His servants. Holy, holy, holy. This is one lesson about God that will tragically take by surprise the unbelieving world on the day Christ returns in judgment. Every knee will bow before His glory. But every heart will tremble in terror as its sins and rebellion are exposed in the irrepressible, penetrating light of His perfect holiness. In that moment, every unbeliever will perceive that he or she has as much chance of of arguing, Hey, I'm a good person who deserves to be in heaven. As much chance of doing that as a matchstick has of standing against the flow of lava from an erupting volcano. But what is in some ways even more tragic is how many who call themselves Christians also fail to appreciate just what it means that the Lord is holy. We can take a lesson from the seraphim there, above God on his throne, who, who even though they themselves are perfectly holy, they still cover their feet and faces with their wings in the Lord's presence. Holy, holy, holy. The threefold repetition points us to the mystery of the Trinity. Three holy persons in one holy God, as does also the three sets of wings on the seraphim and the use of both I and us together in the Lord's question when he speaks in verse 8. But holy, holy, holy also serves to intensify the description. Holy at its most basic means set apart, separate, distinct, But when speaking spiritually, and especially when speaking of God, it means completely separate and completely set apart from any kind of sin or imperfection or uncleanness. Holy, holy, holy praises the Lord of armies as three times removed from rebellion, three times removed from even the hint of evil, from even the slightest of stains, and really from all our human existence and experience on earth, since we are all so thoroughly corrupted with sin and so adept at disobedience. And yet, more and more, The church treats its holy Lord as some kind of divine mannequin that can be manhandled and and repositioned to suit the latest ideas of, of what kind of God we desire. His holy word is approached as if it were any other book, subject to whatever interpretations anyone pleases, authoritative only when and where one wants it to be, able to be rewritten so that offending ideas and even pronouns can be smoothed out or removed. And that's only when attention is paid to it. More often, it is simply left on a shelf to gather dust, like a souvenir of a a faith journey that ended long ago. And what about His holy names? How often are they thrown out in careless, unthinking oaths and empty exclamations and used to curse to hell souls that Christ died for or even to curse offending objects that cannot in reality be damned. Even, even many of the songs that Christians sing today build as praise and worship, fail to echo in any way the seraphim's calls to each other in heaven's throne room, but instead speak of God more as a celestial buddy who's only a bit not like us, or even offered me-centered love songs to Jesus as, as though He were more boyfriend than Messiah. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah came to understand in a very real way what that really meant. He quaked, he feared, he trembled. And when he finally found speech, he cried out, Woe is me, I am doomed. You might even recognize the Hebrew word he used, Oy, his uncleanness undid him in the presence of God's glorious holiness. And this is the natural and proper response to the unshielded holiness of the triune God. Fear and dread. You become painfully aware of your own guilt and unworthiness. And this was the case even with one of God's prophets who by human standards would have been someone with not a lot to feel guilty about and much to take pride in. Now, you and I are certainly no better than Isaiah, so we follow his example. Just as we must more often consider the reality and significance of the Lord's intense and perfect holiness, so we must also comprehend our uncleanness and admit our unworthiness in his presence. We are exposed. Our infidelities and petty idolatries, our indifference to God's word and sacraments, our failure to give the Lord the honor he is due, or to give his representatives in the home, state, or church the honor they are due, our words of anger and fits of rage, our faithless despair and prideful rebellion, all All is laid bare. All our guilt is brought into the light and we are stripped of all our excuses. And so we fall to our knees and we speak the truth that God's holy law speaks first to us. We confess. We confess our nature's utter lack of holiness and our hearts and life's overabundance of sin and we say, I have done what is evil and failed to do what is good. For this, I deserve your punishment, both now and in eternity. And then, holy, holy, holy. What we cannot produce or provide on our own, God supplies. He cleanses and purifies. He takes what is unholy and replaces it with righteousness. He forgives what offends and gives new life and purpose. In Isaiah's vision, this truth is acted out in a most vivid way. The prophet stays rooted where he is. As a sinner, he cannot move toward God's holy throne. The move must come from the Lord because there is nothing that Isaiah or we can do to remove sin or make holy what is unclean. And so the blazing Lord of armies sends the seraph as his messenger and servant who goes to the altar, the place where sacrifices are offered and therefore where the forgiveness of sins is to be found. And he takes from the altar a live, glowing coal and touches the prophet's mouth with it. He announces the Lord's forgiveness for the prophet's sins and the taking away of Isaiah's guilt. And Isaiah is made a saint, a holy one. And it is all by grace. The undeserved favor of God undeserving sinners. And even though what happened with Isaiah took place some 700 years earlier, it is all founded on the ultimate act of God's grace, the sacrifice of His Holy Lamb, the suffering and death of God's Son, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the Savior of all the world. The cross is the altar where His sacrifice was offered. And it is the only place where the forgiveness of sins is to be found. Jesus shed his blood and gave up his life as the payment for all the unholiness of all humanity. And God accepted that payment. Our guilt is taken away and our sin is forgiven. Every last offense. We know it with certainty. Because the Holy Father raised His Holy Son from the dead on the third day. And because the Holy Spirit has worked in us a confident faith that takes hold of this graceful and wonderful truth. But the fact that no works of our own, not even a move toward God and His holiness, are are involved in our being forgiven and made holy, our sanctification... Well, that does not mean that our lives now as God's saints, those made holy by God and set apart for Him, are without works or purpose. Isaiah's lips were unclean, but they were also the lips that God intended to use to speak His word. And so they were what he was most concerned with at that point. And so, with the seraph and the coal. The stain of Isaiah's sin was replaced by the branding of holiness on his mouth. And this, this led to eager service and speaking. We hear the Lord's voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Not as though he doesn't know the answer, but to prompt the prophet's response. And Isaiah speaks committing himself fully without knowing the full content or nature of his new calling. He says, here I am, send me. And this, this is how sinners answer their Savior. This is how the ones made holy respond to the call of the one who made them holy. You don't have to be a prophet or a pastor, or or a missionary. You just have to appreciate who you were before the Holy Spirit worked faith in Christ inside you, and who you are now, because you have been claimed by the triune God in baptism and given saving trust in God's one and only Son. The desire to serve the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the desire to speak God's word to others for Him, follows naturally and properly from having one's sins forgiven by grace and being made holy by that same grace of god and like isaiah we do not and cannot fully know what all lies ahead when we say here i am in response to the lord's call to service but we eagerly accept it anyway We are called to be His witnesses. Every one of us, every Christian, wherever, whenever, and with whomever, called to be His witnesses as He gives us opportunity to tell other lost sinners about Jesus, their Savior. And He will give us the words to speak. We are called to serve our neighbor, as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, as aunts and uncles and grandparents, as employers and employees, as soldiers and sailors, as police officers and EMTs, as as garbage collectors and child care providers and, and salespeople and governors and presidents, whatever calling it may be, and we have many, we represent the triune God and His grace And we serve and love others in His holy name as His holy servants. And Though you and I never knew in advance what all those callings will require of us, we can know that God works all things out for the good of those whom He has called. And we know that He will help and protect and guide and enable us in all of it till the very end so we never give in to our sinful nature never give in to that temptation to answer the Lord's whom shall I send with over there that guy send him no we say here am I because there is nothing that we as God's saints want more than to go and serve in his name Because that is who we are, and that is our purpose. We are God's saints. Holy, holy, holy. Just like the triune God whose name was placed on us at our baptisms, and in whose name we begin our worship and all that is worth doing. Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit. We are his, and he is ours. Holy, holy, holy. Alleluia. Amen. Please rise. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.